Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. The Columbia Gorge had been the main corridor that these millions and millions of salmon would swim up every year, spawn, and then, you know, then the new salmon would come out to the sea and then come back to the gorge. And this was a cycle that was increasingly getting disrupted. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 139, A Force for Nature, Nancy Russell's Fight to Save the Columbia Gorge. Now this week, I'm talking with Bowen Blair about the legacy of Nancy Russell. Bowen is an attorney who has made a career helping various conservation and environmental movements. He's also the former director of the Friends of the Columbia Gorge, former 21-year senior VP of a public land trust, which ran a national land acquisition conservation program, and a friend of Nancy Russell. During the conversation, Bowen tells the history of the Columbia Gorge, its importance to the region's ecosystem, and why it's so important to protect it. He will also share how he is using his new book, to tell the world about his dear friend Nancy, a tenacious, motivating force who went from housewife to conservation hero during her fight to save the Columbia Gorge. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. As you heard in the intro, have a brand new guest for you this week, Bowen Blair. And as you heard, he's an attorney and, by the way, also an author. Uh, Bowen, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate your inviting me. Yeah, you know, when originally we were, the idea of having you on, it was um, this idea of you're an author, let's talk about the book. But really, I feel like we're about to talk about your entire career because the book really <laughs> sort of hinges around things that happened during your career as an attorney. Yeah, it does. You know, it's funny. I practiced as an attorney for two years. And when I was with Friends of the Columbia Gorge, I was still an attorney, but my work wasn't really legal work. It was more advocacy work. And then I, after Friends of the Columbia Gorge, I was with the Trust for Public Land for 21 years, then started a new organization to help tribes reclaim conservation lands. Then I ended up being on the Columbia Gorge Commission which oversees management of the gorge. And I ended up sharing that. So you're right, my whole career really has tended to focus around the Columbia Gorge. That's awesome. But tell me about the book. So the book is A Force for Nature, Nancy Russell's Fight to Save the Columbia Gorge. Tell me about the book. What what are we, what are some of the things that are being covered in this book about Nancy? Sure. Well, it's uh, A Force for Nature is a biography of a person and a place. 
it describes how Nancy Russell, a woman with no political fundraising, advocacy, or organizing experience, mounted a national campaign to overcome what was 80 years of conflict on the Columbia Gorge. And some of that conflict ended up being directed at her through slashed tires and death threats. But she did it to protect the Columbia Gorge, which is one of the nation's most scenic, historic, and at that point, threatened landscapes. So by 1980, the, the gorge's world-class views were on the brink of destruction. There were subdivision uh, proposals that were approved that were on unzoned land in the Western Gorge. And the Western Gorge is just a 20-minute commute from Portland. So, and Portland is, of course, the major economic hub in Oregon. So a new interstate bridge had been built just below the gorge, and that was going to open up these incredibly scenic and historic lands to subdivisions, to factories. So Russell had to put on several campaigns. The biggest one was trying to get federal legislation through the Reagan administration. And this was at a time when James Watt was Secretary of Interior. So he had actually put a moratorium on the creation of new federal lands. And then he later tried to sell off about 35 million acres of the federal domain. So it couldn't have come at a worse time. Uh, but 1980, it was going to happen in that decade or the gorge was going to be lost. So Russell mounted this campaign. And, and the book is really a behind the scenes look at how the campaign was successful, how she fought off subdivisions, factories, uh, the sale of public lands, and how she got federal legislation, the only new public lands bill to pass the eight years of Ronald Reagan's presidency, how she got that passed. And again, I, I came back to where I started. This was a woman who had no advocacy background, no fundraising, no organizing. But she did it because she was passionate about this incredible national landscape. And she had so many incredible qualities like determination, perseverance, intelligence. She was competitive. And she overcame this resistance. And, and the resistance to protecting the gorge wasn't recent. It started, the first bill to protect the gorge was actually introduced in Congress in 1916. And about every 20 years, there was a new effort to protect the gorge, whether as a national park, an interstate park, uh, a national recreation area. And it wasn't until 1980 that we came up with this proposal for a national scenic area that, that really created totally new federal land use laws to protect this amazing landscape. Forgive my my ignorance here a little yep. bit, um, because I was not born until 1986. Um, so, <laughs> you know, this everything that you just sort of alluded to there hits a sweet spot in time of conservation that I'm not overly aware of, because yeah. I'm very in tune with you know the work of Theodore Roosevelt, with the work of um, you know people that were sort of the the godfathers of modern conservation sure. um and i'm very aware of within the last 10 to 15 years 
the work of conservation groups and, and the key players in that. But there's a sweet spot there that, you know, you think of the 80s, like, hey, this free swing in time that I heard about, right? And everyone was doing coke and partying all the time <laughs> and making tons of money on Wall Street. Um, you don't really think of it as a time for conservation. Yeah. So forgive my my ignorance for that. Um, who before she, Nancy started this big campaign, like who was she? What did she do? What you know? You mentioned like yeah. determination and um, competitiveness that enabled yeah. her to do this great work. But who was she before that? That sort of led up to this sort of bulldog mentality. Yeah, well, she was a mom, and she was a mom of five kids. Uh, one of whom tragically died as a two-year-old from a doctor's misdiagnosis of meningitis. Uh, she had a daughter who uh, suffered terribly from mental illness, ended up being institutionalized. So she saw adversity. She was born during the Great Depression. Her family moved 11 times during one five-year period to try to find affordable housing. But then she met uh, Bruce Russell, who had a, uh, a small cabin next to theirs. And Bruce was a successful investment banker, stockbroker, and ended up being, as I said, very successful. They married, they had the family. Nancy would take her kids out uh, to places that she enjoyed and that she had hoped that they would enjoy. Uh, the Cascades in Oregon. Uh, they had a small cabin where they ended up living most of the year. It was very primitive, no running water, no electricity, but they would spend summers there. By the time the fall came, you could have 10 feet of snow in October or November in the Cascades. And then their, their family, when they were moving and trying to find affordable housing, they ended up staying at a farmhouse that their grandfather had bought. Her grandfather had, ended, had been a very wealthy man out of the Midwest, but lost his entire fortune in the Depression. So Nancy, when she was a child, lived in the farmhouse for several years. And so she got this incredible love of nature, whether from the cabin up in the Cascades or the farmhouse in Dundee uh, on just off the Willamette Valley. And she uh, got her kids interested in it. And when she was a young mom, she wanted to do things that entertain the kids, but also that she enjoyed. So she'd take them to the Columbia Gorge, which was, again, a 20-minute drive from downtown Portland. And she would take them on hikes. She loved wildflowers. She's very interested in the history of the wildflowers. And the Columbia Gorge has... 800 different species of wildflowers, 16 that exist nowhere else in the world. So she she loved the gorge and she connected with it uh, physically. She loved to hike, she loved to swim in the Columbia. Emotionally, uh, her love of these incredible vistas and you know acres and acres and acres of wildflowers on top of mountains. And uh, so physically, emotionally, intellectually, the, the history of the Columbia Gorge, where Lewis and Clark came through, where the Oregon Trail immigrants came through. Uh, the Eastern Gorge was and still is incredibly important to native people. 
It has what many people recognize as the longest continuously occupied site in North America, which was Celilo Falls and the village that was built around this incredible fishing area where you could, uh, Native Americans would spear or more likely uh, net salmon who weighed a hundred pounds or more. And this was the center of Native American activity in the Northwest uh, until the dams came through in the thirties and fifties. So Russell connected with the gorge in so many ways. She brought her kids there. She started a slideshow about the wildflowers and particularly how they, the history of them, uh, how they were named after people like Meriwether Lewis, uh, Clark, uh, Nuttall, you know, these famous explorers and botanists. And that slideshow got traction. She started for the Portland Garden Club, but more and more people saw it. And finally, when the gorge was on the, the verge of being destroyed in the early 1980s, uh, well-known architect John Yon, who had devoted much of his life he was actively involved in protecting the gorge in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He was now in his 60s. He was felt too old. He was too tired. He wanted someone to take on the campaign to protect the gorge. And again, it had to be protected in, by 1980s or it would have been lost. And the Park Service came out with a great report in 1980 that said it was one of the most important landscapes in the United States and it was threatened. And so people started looking around for a leader to this movement to protect the gorge, and it was Nancy Russell. So that's how she kind of got in this position in 1980. And then she single-handedly built an incredibly effective organization, Friends of the Columbia Gorge, and she you know, built it from scratch. And it ended up within a year, two years, having 4,000 members uh, stopping through litigation, uh, several large development subdivisions uh, on, in the Western Gorge, mostly in Skamania County, which was unzoned, stopping a factory right at the entrance to the gorge. And so she, she used this campaign that was partially land acquisition, partially litigation, and then eventually getting this federal legislation through Congress and getting President Reagan to sign it. So uh, I want to I want to talk about that. Like, what were some of the tactics used? You, you say like land acquisition and litigation, but like, how do you get one? How do you get 4000 people on your side? Um, yeah. And then two, like, how do you go about acquiring the land? How do you go yeah. about deciding to litigate to stop something like i know there's a lot of little intricate parts to all of that like what are some of the things that she was able to do and get her followers to do to protect the gorge yeah well how you get four thousand people is one at a time she would take people up in the gorge she spent all day in the gorge and she would initially take you know, one or two key people, whether it was a reporter or a politician or a donor. And every day she would take them out there and spend the day with them and show them what was threatened and what was so important about it. Uh, then after a while, it wasn't one-on-one, -on -one, she would be taking groups up there. She would get busloads and they would be 
often women's groups or conservation organizations. So she would educate people about it. And if she couldn't get people out to the gorge, she would bring the gorge to them. She put together an incredible multimedia presentation that involved two projectors and an audio visual thing. It was 30 pounds of equipment. And she would take it out every night and make presentations to people, to organizations. Then she would get the organizations to sign on, get their members to write Congress. Uh, she would do, uh, she started a hiking weekend that would for a week in the summer would uh, highlight certain trails. 1500 people ended up going out on that within a year or two. Then she would get those people to become members. She would get them to write Congress. She would get their organizations to, uh, to uh, sign on to her legislation. So she built it piece by piece by piece. And then once that started, and once she got reporters out, you know, it was really these, these development proposals were really dramatic. They were, there was one proposal for a subdivision that was on top of Cape Horn in the Western Gorge, which is one of Washington's premier landmarks. And it was gonna be subdivided even though it was illegal to do it the way the subdivider went about doing it. And another subdivision just below on the banks of the Columbia, right across from Multnomah Falls, which is one of the largest waterfalls in North America, year round waterfalls. And it's just, it's in the middle of this incredibly scenic place. So she was able to ask the question, is this the right place to put a factory? Is this the right place to put a subdivision? And she would get a pro bono attorney who would uh, sue on her behalf. She would uh, get plaintiffs uh, to represent the, the lawsuit. And, and she would just continue to use that sort of litigation. But unfortunately, litigation often was only a temporary victory because there was no zoning, as I mentioned in Skamania County, which is one of six counties that are part of the Columbia Gorge, but it was the biggest one from a land area standpoint. So litigation was temporarily successful, but then all the developer had to do was comply with a few state regulations and he'd have the subdivision in place. So that meant someone had to acquire the property. So Russell brought the Trust for Public Land in, which is a national nonprofit. It was headquartered in San Francisco, but it works all around the country. And TPL works on buying land to get it out of private ownership if it's about to be developed and if it's a critical piece of property, and then holds on to the land temporarily and puts it into public ownership by going to Congress, getting the funds allocated so that an agency like the Forest Service or the National Park Service could buy the land. But the only way TPL was going to be able to get the land into public ownership was if this legislation protecting the entire gorge were to pass. And that was the chief drama. But, but in any case, there were just dozens and dozens of these development proposals that came down to litigation that was successful, but only temporarily so, and then came down to the wire as far as whether the property could be acquired, 
whether the funds could be raised to put it in the public ownership. And time and time again, that came down to the very last second. So there were all these series of kind of roller coaster rides that nobody knew whether it was going to be successful. And ultimately, of course, getting the legislation passed was just that too. It came down to the last second. Nobody knew if it was going to be successful. And if it wasn't successful, the, the gorge would have been lost. It would have been marred forever. So my book is really a behind the scenes look at how she was able to use litigation, land acquisition, and eventually legislation to protect this area that she was so passionate about. So you mentioned all these temporary measures that that are being used, right? To basically just buy time until exactly. the ultimate goal can happen. Um, but you also talk about like just sort of coming down to the wire, like you're not sure which way, you know, if you're going to buy enough time and the way things, but things did work out. Um, was there talk uh, before things working out? Was there talk about like, well, if we run out of time, our, our next step is going to be this, like chaining ourselves to trees or, you know, like picketing or, or you know, with signs or anything like that? Like, was there talk about doing those more like what we see as sort of like grassroots disruptive style protests? Was that an option that was considered? Yes. And, and that actually was going on, too. There was a, a smaller organization called the Columbia Gorge Coalition, uh, led by a guy called Chuck Williams, who his friends called him the last hippie remaining on Earth. And, and Chuck was great. He was a an accomplished writer, a, a really good photographer, but he chained himself to uh, doors of developers. He picketed uh, real estate uh, agencies. So the, the Friends was a more uh, kind of quickly became an established organization that could use litigation, land acquisition and legislation and make that happen. But definitely there were smaller groups out there that were doing that sort of work. But, but to answer your question too, you know, I, I, Nancy was a really positive person and she was an optimist. And I think you have to be when you try to get legislation, particularly through the Reagan administration. So she always felt that legislation was gonna happen. So she, and one of, the, one of her great strengths was she had an incredible focus and that is almost like she had blinders on. So she wouldn't look at things that were peripheral. She kept her eye on the prize and that was getting ultimately legislation passed. So you mentioned, um, you know, the secretary of the interior at the time, um, basically being adversarial to public lands. Um, I mean, what, what was it that made the Reagan administration so against or an unlikely chance of, of getting the legislation passed? Like, why was it so unlikely with that administration? What was it about their policy that made it so yeah. tough? Well, well, keep in mind that it wasn't just the Reagan administration. It, as I mentioned, the first bill to protect the gorge was introduced in 1916. And then there were efforts every 20 years or so, but they never went anywhere. And a, a large part of it was uh, infighting, federal infighting. 
we had hoped the National Park Service would end up managing the gorge. The Forest Service, which had a pretty significant ownership interest in the gorge, owning about 20% or actually closer to 15% of the land, uh, didn't want the Park Service coming in. So there was some bureaucratic infighting. There was, uh, you had Skamania County, one of six gorge counties, which was very rural, lightly populated, didn't like uh, federal restrictions, hated federal restrictions, didn't like state restrictions, and didn't even like local restrictions like zoning. So you, you had that, you had 41,000 people who lived in the Columbia Gorge. So this was introducing a new idea about how the land would be managed. And anytime you introduce a new uh, kind of plan about land management and the uh, the kind of center of that movement is a the metropolitan county, Multnomah County in Oregon, and your much of the impact would happen on rural counties. You're going to have conflict there. So you had historic conflict, then you had contemporary conflict. And to get back to your question, you know the Reagan administration was an ideological administration and public lands was not a priority for it. As a matter of fact, kind of dismantling the uh, kind of public protection of lands was pretty high on the administration's list. And James Watt was the classic Secretary of Interior. You know, he, he really didn't like public lands. He wanted to sell off the public land space. So you had all these combinations of urban versus rural, west of the mountains versus east of the mountains because the Columbia Gorge goes through the Cascade Range. You had two states, Oregon and Washington, that often disagreed on things. You had six counties that were very different. And as I mentioned, you had 41,000 people, many of whom didn't want to see a change, particularly a change they were uncertain about that was driven by a metropolitan area. So let's talk a little bit about that threat um, of development. I mean, obviously you've mentioned the scenic uh, atmosphere of the gorge. And uh, whenever you mention that, it makes me think of Theodore Roosevelt whenever he went to um, the Grand Canyon and started to see some billboards placed up and, and things like that and mentioned how that was a distraction and um, a, a disgusting distraction from the beauty that, you know, God created. Um, so you have that, but what about like an ecological impact to the gorge? I mean, when you start getting that development, what, what could go wrong with that ecological impact? Well, you could see so much, whether it's pollution, particularly water pollution. I mean, the, the Columbia Gorge had been the main corridor that these millions and millions of salmon would swim up every year, spawn, and then, you know, then the new salmon would come out to the sea and then come back to the gorge. And this was a cycle that was increasingly getting disrupted. And it was getting disrupted by the dams, but also you had non-point water pollution, you had point source water pollution. Anytime you had that much development introduced into a rural area, there were gonna be ramifications on the gorge 
was in, in many places is a pretty wild place where you had all sorts of different uh, species that were threatened, uh, endangered. So you had those considerations. So the legislation had to, I'm glad you pointed this out, had to affect both the scenic values, the recreational values, because this is a big recreation area, uh, the cultural values. I talked a little bit about the tribes before and the natural values. And all, each one of those four values was incredibly important and all was being affected by the factories, the subdivisions and other things. So uh, with this new legislation that was passed in, in the A's making, you know, designating it a scenic area, you mentioned that that had never that designation never been made before in the United States. That's um, right. I know that there's a few areas now that also carry that same designation. What does scenic area mean? Like, and I guess to define my question, we know, most people know that a national park is to preserve what's there. Very little, uh, if any, human interaction. There's no timbering. There's no hunting. Um, fishing is typically catch and release um what the what kind of protections does a scenic area offer you know that's a good question and it's uh it's one that's you there's no easy answer to it uh because each one is different uh national scenic area was kind of a catch-all term that was uh, as you're right the the columbia gorge was the first proposed national scenic area. Then it became uh, involved in all this controversy. So one or two happened before the gorge legislation passed. And they're like national recreation areas. There's no great definition of a national recreation area other than there's generally a fair amount of federal land. There's regulations but the regulations generally pertain to the public land and not the private land. So the Columbia Gorge National Scenic Area is very different from national recreation areas and other national scenic areas that have been created. It's much larger for one reason. It's just under 300,000 acres, about 450 square miles. It's about 85 miles long and it's anywhere from three to 13 miles wide. So it's a very big area. It's also an area that is primarily in private ownership. So we had to have a level of uh, land use restrictions on private land in order to protect the national scenic area. And that's not done in all national scenic areas. Most national scenic areas, just like most national recreation areas, are primarily in public ownership and they don't have extensive private land use regulations. We kind of broke the mold with the National Scenic Area, which is one of the reasons it was so controversial because we saw for really the first time extensive federal involvement in how private land was actually managed. And the conservative Republicans in Congress at that point, that, that was just absolutely anathema to them. And they tried to kill the bill, and they almost did. And then President Reagan had 30 days to sign it. First of all, the, the bill didn't pass Congress till the last day of the session. 
And it only passed because the rules committee met several times once at midnight with a day left in the in the session to get the legislation to the floor of the House where it passed. And the only reason it passed the Senate was because of Mark Hatfield, who was a senior senator from Oregon, and who also was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, which, as I'm sure you know, is the most powerful committee on the Hill. So Hatfield was able to get it through the Senate on the last day of the session by unanimous consent, which is a a tactic used for uncontroversial bills. And this was anything but uncontroversial. But Hatfield was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, so he muscled it through. Then Reagan had 30 days to sign it or it would die of a pocket veto. We didn't hear anything for the first 10 days or for the first 20 days. We were hearing and we knew Reagan disliked it. And then there were three veto recommendations from his agency's uh, Office of Management and Budget, Interior and Justice Department, all recommended vetoes. On the 29th day, at the very last hour, Reagan called Senator Hatfield at home and told him he was gonna veto the legislation. And Hatfield said, and we have this from his wife who overheard the conversation. Hatfield said, I understand, Mr. President, you have to do what you have to do. And then he hesitated and said, and I have to do what I have to do. And I know that the strategic arms initiative called Star Wars by its detractors, you know its budget is coming up to my appropriations committee in the next few weeks. And I want you to think about that because the Columbia Gorge is very important to me. And the next day, Reagan signed the legislation. As Hatfield said, he signed it with his right hand and held his nose with his left hand. So, you know, it was just really controversial. And but that's why Reagan ended up signing it, not only because of the strong grassroots effort that Russell had put together, but because of Senator Hatfield's leadership. So it's controversial. You've mentioned uh, way in the beginning of our conversation about some slash tires and things of that nature that Nancy had to endure. Um who was doing that? Like who was go like going after and trying to intimidate and, and threaten her? Yeah. Well, there there were a host of organizations that popped up in Skamania County, small grassroots organizations that were fighting Russell. But the the biggest one was uh led by a guy called Charles Cushman, who was ahead of what was called the National Inholders Association. And it was a national group and it was opposed, it was put together to fight efforts like this. And the Skamania County commissioners at the time, it is alleged, paid Cushman to come in and stir up uh, opposition. And Cushman's nickname was Rent-A-Riot. And it was a very apt nickname because that's what he did. He went up and down the Columbia Gorge and he told its 40,000 plus residents that they would be forced to evacuate if this legislation passed. He called the National Park Service Nazis. He called the legislation the final solution. So he he really created this incredible animosity. And most of it was directed at Russell because she was the leader of the movement. So after one congressional hearing in Stevenson, which is the county seat in Skamania County, 
uh, we came out and three of her four tires had been slashed. And then the death threats started coming in and they, they were mostly sent to the Oregonian, which is you know, our, our major newspaper in the region. But some of them were left on her voicemail at home. So it, it was this, um, you know, this, this calculated throwing gasoline on the fire that uh, was one of the things that made the legislation so controversial and made Russell a real target of that opposition. And how did she handle that? I mean, that that's some serious yeah. stuff, right? It's, um, I feel like it, I feel like it's un, it would be unnerving to yeah. me. Uh, how did she handle that? It was unnerving. It was really unnerving to me. And Russell just, it was like water off a duck's back. And I, I talked earlier about her focus. And that was it. You know, she was a competitive tennis player. She was one professional, said she was one of the best women's uh, tennis players in the country. And she was so good, not because of her strokes. She had lousy strokes because she never could afford lessons when she was a kid. But it was that determination. It was that focus on the ball. She would run every single point down, even in warmups. She would try to hit kill shots for her opponents. So she was very competitive and she was very focused. And she, she would focus on what was important, what would make a difference. And to her, the death threats were annoying and yeah, they were a little scary, but there wasn't much she could do about them. So she would just focus on getting the legislation through. It scared me a lot more than it scared her, I think. And she was a target. I, I, I've said it before to some family and friends, you know, women are just, uh, they're, they're a different breed. They, you know, <laughs> handling things like that. My wife, my mom, my grandmother, like they are stronger than me uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and that seems to be a, a common theme with a lot of yeah. women uh, whenever they put themselves in a situation like Nancy well, did. And that's really true. And, and keep in mind that, you know, she, as I mentioned, she had lost her son Hardy as a toddler to meningitis. She had a daughter who was institutionalized for mental illness. So she had been through very, very difficult situations. And, you know, as a result, when you have that happen to your immediate family, you know, what's happening as far as death threats to you or obstacles to legislation, you can put those in perspective, I think, better. And, you know, Russell, she was remarkable because we're just talking about her fight to save the Columbia Gorge, but she was a mother then to four children and she, Bruce Russell was a wonderful husband and he ended up being very supportive. And they committed much of what was his fortune into buying and protecting land. But, uh, but he was kind of an old fashioned guy and he wanted dinner at six o'clock and he wanted Nancy to cook dinner and clean the dishes. So she would spend all day in the gorge, as I mentioned before, with reporters or funders or conservation organizations or women's organizations. Then she'd come home at three o'clock and she'd dash off a bunch of letters or phone calls to mostly congressional people. Then she would cook dinner for 
her family of four kids and husband, and she'd clean up. Then she'd go out and show this uh, multimedia slideshow that she put together every single night. And so she'd get home at 10 o'clock and she'd start the next morning up at six or seven and do the same thing. And, and to do that, you need to have not just the intellectual strength and but you need incredible stamina too. And she probably got a lot of that from her hiking and swimming in the gorge, but from her tennis too. That's an incredible woman. Um, so 42 years later, you know, 40 years later, uh, we're sitting down talking about her story and talking about the Columbia Gorge. Are there any new threats? Like, is there anything that is of concern now when it comes to the Columbia Gorge? Or can we just sort of sit back and relax and revel in her hard work? Nancy would be rolling over in her grave if I answered that, yes, we can sit back and, <laughs> and revel in her work. No, you know, there were, there were things that we hadn't anticipated uh, when the legislation was passed. Climate change was barely on the radar, and now it's a huge issue and the Forest Service and Columbia Gorge Commission are trying to deal with it. But, the, you know, the Gorge is an amazing area. I mentioned it's 85 miles long. It goes through this huge mountain chain. It's one of the few places in North America that a major river cuts through a mountain change at sea level. So you have the Western Gorge, which gets about 45 inches of rain. You have the Middle Gorge, which gets about 100 inches of rain a year. Then you've got the Eastern Gorge, which only gets about 10 inches. So you go from rainforest to high desert. And so the, the drying climate has made a, a huge difference in the gorge. Wildfires are pretty common occurrences now. You have two sets of trains that run the length of the gorge. Those throw sparks off into dry vegetation. We had a conflagration set off by a hiker four or five years ago that burned 50,000 acres. And the gorge, because it's, it goes from kind of the, the more moderate uh, west side to the more harsh east side, creates, it's essentially a wind funnel. So in the, the summers, it's not unusual to have winds of 45 miles an hour. And you have a train derailment or you have a wildfire started, whether by a train or a hiker or by lightning, and it's being pushed by 45 or 50 mile an hour winds, and you could see incredible destruction. So that's that's a, a, a new a newer threat. There always were wildfires in the gorge, but there are many more now. And it's because you've got more people in the gorge, you've got more trains in the gorge and you've got a drying climate. So that's an issue. Enforcement continues to be a really important issue in the gorge. Enforcement is a controversial area. Federal agencies are cautious in doing it. Even the Gorge Commission, which you know is, is a, uh, an agency that's set up with appointees from the six counties and the two governors, so you have people on that commission who are very invested in protecting the gorge, and you have some people who are more invested in protecting the, the kind of local ability to develop and that sort of thing. So you have you continue to have controversy, 
and you continue to have issues that are not being resolved. So absolutely, we still have to be concerned about the Columbia Gorge. So if people want to learn more about the Gorge, um, about Nancy, obviously by the book, right? Uh, but <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> if they, what are some other resources? What other than just visiting, um, yeah. which I'm sure you would recommend. Um, I would. But where should people look for information there, outside of those two options? There are some great websites. The Columbia Gorge Commission has put together a wonderful website uh, with great information about the gorge, uh, great photographs. The Forest Service for the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area also has a very good website. Friends of the Columbia Gorge, which is the organization that Russell created, is going stronger than ever. It's got a land trust, it's got an enforcement arm, it's got uh, hiking programs. Get on the Friends of the Gorges website. Uh, those are three really good areas that I would encourage people to go to after, of course, they bought the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bowen, I want to thank you for coming on and sort of giving us this primer of the history of the gorge um, about the history of Nancy and why it's important. Um, I hope that as people listen to this and it intrigues them if they hadn't heard about this fight before, uh, that they look into finding out more information. I know I am. Uh, so again, thank you for coming on. It really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate your uh, extending the invitation. And let me extend an invitation. If you ever find yourself out in the Northwest, I'd love to take you through the gorge. I really appreciate what you're doing and uh, thank you. Well, be careful uh, extending an offer like that. Uh, I may take you up on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. And that'll do it for another episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I really appreciate it. And a big thank you to Bowen. Um, this, is, this is a story that I had no idea about. Um, I knew a little bit about the Columbia Gorge. I knew that it was important for salmon runs. Um, I knew it was a very scenic area. But I didn't know this whole story and, you know, just how much crap that Nancy went through trying to protect this area uh, in the name of, you know, conservation. Um, so this was a great story to tell. And this is definitely a story that I think everyone needs to know about because we know the big conservation players. We know those names, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, Aldo Leopold. But it's people like Nancy that often make the big difference, you know, with the boots on the ground work in their own backyard. So I highly recommend everyone go out and grab this book. I already have it. It's in my list. It's about two books away. Um, I'm hoping to, to get to it here uh, in the very near future uh, if I haven't already by the time this episode releases. But if you're interested in learning more about Nancy and more about what it took to conserve the scenic and important ecosystem that is the Columbia Gorge, check the links in the episode details at Bowen's website, at Amazon, or at Barnes & Nobles, or check out your local bookstore as well. They can get it in for you as well. Until next time, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild. <laughs>